The scripture passage we're going to be looking at today is one that is probably quite familiar to us, and so we're going to approach it a little differently. Usually what we do when we read the scripture is we will have the words projected on the screens, but what we're going to do instead is have a painting that's going to come up. It's by the 17th century Dutch painter Rembrandt. It's a painting of the scene that we will be studying today. It's going to remain up while we're reading the scripture. It's going to remain up throughout the entire sermon. And I encourage you just to use it as a visual resource for us to continue to dive deep into this text and what it has for us this day. The passage comes from selected verses from Luke 15. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger." I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals at his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all those years I've been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, we would hear your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
And friends, the reason that we're going to keep this painting up the entire time is one of the things that's so important in this passage to us to identify the characters and to identify with all the different characters in this story. And they're depicted here. Rembrandt has the younger son who's just returned. He has the father embracing him. You see the servants in the background looking on at what is taking place. And you even see the older son there on the right, cold and distant and removed. It's important that we see ourselves and how the story lives in us. So let's start by looking at some of these characters. And I think it's the right place to start by the one that this is traditionally known for, the younger son, the one who's commonly called the prodigal. If you look in a Bible, if you brought it today, there's probably a little title above this section of scripture saying the parable of the prodigal son. And that is true. That's talking about the younger of these two boys. Now, prodigal is an important word. And I want you to know what it means. It means to give or spend wildly, lavishly, out of control. And that certainly describes the younger son, doesn't it? I mean, he goes to his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, he dresses up a little nicer than that, but that's essentially what he says. What he says is, I don't want to wait anymore for my inheritance. I wish you were gone so that I could just have half of the family fortune, half of the property. And the father, in a way that I'm certain a financial planner would have advised him not to do, gives him half of the family fortune, gives him half of the property. And the son, it says, goes off and spends it, I love the Bible here, on dissolute living (laughs) in a foreign land. It means he parties and he kind of just goes wild until it's all gone. And some of us have been here before, maybe many of us have been here before. You might think you're having fun in the moment, in the midst of that, but there is always a moment when that is the lifestyle you are choosing at any level, when you wake up and realize you have nothing. There is an emptiness to the journey of trying to take all the stuff of this world and if I can just get enough of it and experience enough of it and have enough of it, then that's going to be what life's about. We all know prodigals like this, don't we? We might be the prodigal right now. We might have been a lot like the prodigal 20 years ago. What's important that I want you all to see today is how each of us here, though, should be able to identify with this younger son. Because even if you're like, well, I've never done anything like that, there's parts of him that live in you today. There's parts of us that's like why we celebrate so much of the great things of this world. And there's a line that we can cross that if we just say, if I just get enough of it, if I have enough designer stuff, if I have enough likes on Facebook, if I have enough uh, uh, followers on Instagram, if I have enough of designer bags or clothes, if I have enough promotion, if I have enough of a salary, then that stuff, my life will at some point make sense. That is the younger son alive in us. And it's important for you to be able to not go, oh, that's someone else, but to go, oh, I see that that's a part of me. And if you're sitting there right now going, I don't think that's a part of me, talk to people close to you. (laughs) Ask them how you depend on the things. The ones that see this more than anyone else are are, are his family. They see it up close and personal. Ask your family to tell you the truth. Do I have things in this world that are really probably very important to me? If they're telling you the truth, they're going to go, oh, yeah. Yeah, we all have this, right? So when we talk about it as the parable of the prodigal son, he's depicted here. It's important we see that, and that title makes sense. But what we also see that Rembrandt captures, and it's important for us to remember, is it's not just the story of the prodigal, is it? 
In fact, in my study Bible at home, the title above this passage says it's the parable of the prodigal and his brother, which is probably a better title because it's at least as much about the older brother as it is about the younger brother. The younger brother's more sensational, but the older brother, the rule follower, the righteous one, the one who's always done everything right, there is a coldness to him that is chilling. And I want us to all see how it is that we can relate to the older brother as well, because I want you to hear something. Churches are full of older sons. Churches are full of older brothers. And it's important for us to see how in our sense of being good, of being right, of being virtuous, of following the rules and doing what we're supposed to do, that there is a dark shadow side to that way of living that we must be in tune with as well. And to ask yourself the question how that is also a part of you. How is the older son? Henry Nowen is an author who writes about this, and he reflects here on his own wrestling with how the eldest son is a part of him. And I'm going to read this, and I invite you just to hear and to reflect as we look at the painting of how it is that this older son might exist in you. Nowen writes this. He says, The more I reflect on the elder son in me, the more I realize how deeply rooted this form of lostness really is and how hard it is to return home from there. Returning home from a lustful escapade seems so much easier than returning home from a cold anger that has rooted itself in the deepest corners of my being. My resentment is not something that can be easily distinguished and dealt with rationally. It's far more pernicious, something that has attached itself to the underside of my virtue. Isn't it good to be obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hardworking, and self-sacrificing? And still it seems that my resentments and complaints are mysteriously tied to such praiseworthy attitudes. This connection often makes me despair. At the very moment I want to speak or act out of my most generous self, I get caught in anger or resentment. And it seems that just as I want to be more selfless, I find myself obsessed about being loved and recognized. Just when I do my utmost to accomplish a task well, I find myself questioning why others do not give themselves as I do. And just when I think I'm incapable of overcoming my temptations, I feel envy toward those who gave in to theirs. It seems that wherever my virtuous self is, there also is the resentful complainer. Listen to that last line again. It seems that wherever my virtuous self is, there also is the resentful complainer. See any parallels or overlaps in your own story? Churches are full of older sons. And the consequences of this sin, even though the veneer is a lot cleaner and nicer than the younger son, it is just as deadly and sinful. Take, for example, in this passage, and Rembrandt captures this really well, the older son uh, cannot celebrate when he comes home. Before he even knows it's about his brother, the text says that he comes and he hears this party and he goes, this isn't planned for. I don't know what this is about. I don't know that it's about me. It's probably not about me because I'm not even there in the middle of it. And his, his reaction is suspicion rather than curiosity about what this could be. Older sons are killjoys. 
They don't have much joy in their life and they're not able to celebrate much of what's going on in the lives of other people. And so we see how he is cold and removed there in the midst of the curiosity and joy and celebration. We see also how lonely and isolated these older sons become. Notice how there's a darkness that separates the older son from the rest of the people taking place in the story. He's become so isolated and alone because everyone else is competition. You see, when you are virtuous, when you are right, when you distinguish yourselves by what you do, then you have to measure up against the competition, which is everyone else around you. And this older son lives in the isolation that comes from living in that way. Everyone is a competition, and what are they getting, and how are they being recognized? And so when his younger brother comes back, his immediate thought is, I am better than my younger brother, and I can't believe that you're giving this celebration to him. He has not earned it yet. And in some of the most chilling lines in this passage, when his father comes out to plead with him, you see his isolation on display because he says, when this son of yours returned... He never even identifies him as my brother anymore. And maybe most chilling of all, at least the younger son repents and comes back. At the end, the self-righteous, virtuous older son, there's no indication he ever says, you're right, I'm sorry, and returns to something new. He is so convinced of his rightness and his inability to compromise that, that he just remains outside in the cold alone convinced that he is right and everyone else is wrong. It's important for us to see how the older son lives in us. And again, if you don't see it, ask the people you love to tell you the truth. So is it the parable of the prodigal son? Yeah. Probably better to say it's the parable of the prodigal son and his brother. But finally and lastly, we see that that's not all that's in this painting either. Where Rembrandt brings the most light in this painting is on the figure of the father. And I believe that the best title we could see in a Bible above this passage is that this is truly the story of a father and his two sons. And the father is the hero of this story. Tim Keller writes that, in fact, when we think about the word prodigal and tie it in with this passage, that we shouldn't be talking about the younger son as the prodigal, but it's actually the father that's the prodigal. What is a prodigal? Again, it's someone who gives away or spends lavishly, wildly out of control. And Tim Keller says that's the kind of love of the father here. A lavish, out of control compassion that just changes the narrative completely. Take, for example, when his younger son says, I wish you were dead. The father gives him half of what he's worked for, half of what he has, half of what he's been stewarding. Take, for example, as well, the undignified way that when he sees his youngest son coming back, having blown everything, having lost half of what the family had worked, maybe for generations before. The father doesn't wait for him to get to him. He doesn't shame him when he comes, but he is so moved with compassion that it says he runs to his son. And we have to understand what that, how undignified that was because scholars tell us that the way that um, wealthier people at the time would have dressed was they would have had tightly woven uh, robes around them. And so you couldn't run in that clothing. And so to run to his son, he would have had to hike up his robe so that his legs were showing so that he could move them enough to run. It would have been an undignified, shameful thing. The servants would have turned away embarrassed and the father does not care. It is an undignified, wild compassion. 
as he runs to his son and welcomes him back in. And we see this finally in the cold, removed, virtuous, rule-following older son. That when he shames his father publicly by refusing to go into the party where the neighbors are there, and everyone would have seen the shame on the father. Father reacts by leaving the party and going out and pleading and seeking to explain himself to his self-righteous, removed eldest son. To prodigal compassion, a prodigal love. And one of the mistakes I think we can make in the church, and I know I make this a lot, is that we sit there and we read this passion like, oh, I'm more like the older, older son, or I'm more like the younger son. I know people who are more like the older son or the younger son, and that's good, but that's not the point. The point is not which son are you. That's like half of the point. The point of this passage, and this is what I want us to end with, is that you're not supposed to be content realizing which son you're more like. You're supposed to become the father. The father's the hero of this story. The father's the one who is the prodigal, and you and I are called to be like the father. We're called to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, meaning where you live, work, and play, you are to exhibit this wild, out-of-control compassion, love, and forgiveness. And so the question I want you to end with is like, so how do you do that? And in a church like Covenant, if I sit there with you all and go, now listen, the point is to become like the Father. That's the goal. We are going to respond like elder sons to that. This is the kind of church we're going to be like, oh, okay, if that's the point, if that's the win, I'm going to work at that. Got it. I'm glad to know that. I am going to like read about it. I'm going to pray about it. And I'm going to discipline myself. And I'm going to focus on myself. And I'm going to become like, that's how I got to college. That's how I worked my way through grad school. That's how I started the company. That's how I've had the, the success I've had. Tell me the goal. And if the goal is to become the father, I will go make that happen. You watch. I'm going to be a father like you haven't seen that exists in this world. <laughs> That's how you and I operate, and we're celebrated for that. But it doesn't work here. There have been huge books written on this. We don't have time to get into it. Here's why it doesn't work. Because we have to see the hypocrisy of the thinking that says, I am going to focus on me so much that I will become generous to you. I am going to focus so much on myself and how I act that I will become generous and loving to you. Do you see that? Do you see why it won't work? There is not a way that we can go so inward that we in the end become outwardly focused. We need something more. And what Nowen says is that if you and I want to start exhibiting the love and compassion, the prodigal wildness of the father here, the way we do that is that we remember and have to reflect on how we've received that love ourselves. We don't generate that kind of wild love and compassion and grace. That we have to hold out now and says the older and younger sons that live within us, acknowledge them and then remember and celebrate how God has loved us despite ourselves. How has God's love been the hero of your story? And if you think about that, and if you remember how merciful and good and compassionate God has been to you, you will become that love in the world. You'll reflect it. And you will be much more effective in living that out than if you discipline yourself for it. What are the stories in your life? 
And in these stories, you're not going to be the hero where God has been wildly merciful and graceful to you. I was reminded of one of my stories in that this week, and I share it with you, not to you know this about me, but as an example that we can end on of how you can think about this in your own life. But over spring break, uh, I got to go, and I can't believe I'm at this point in life, with my eldest daughter and um, my wife on a uh, series of college visits for the first time ever. We went on spring break, and we were looking at a number of schools in North Carolina and Virginia, and we did like a nine-day uh, road trip, and we saw lots of schools that she's thinking about or, 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 or interested in. And, and the first school we started at was my alma mater, Davidson College. If you don't know Davidson, it's a small uh, school just outside of Charlotte. Uh, if you don't know it, you would know one of our most famous graduates, Steph Curry. Um, he's like the only professional athlete Davidson has produced in 100 years. <laughs> but if you're only going to have one, that's a good one to have, right? Um, as many of you know, Davidson was not a path that I took on a straight and narrow way. My family was imploding and I started college uh, and very quickly devolved into some pretty destructive behaviors and patterns that resulted in, by the end of my sophomore year, dropping out of school. And not only did I drop out of school, but I was angry enough that, and I've shared some of this before, that I went to the Dean of Students office and informed him how dumb his school was and his job was. <laughs> and uh, and I, was, I was just intent on destroying and I left and I didn't speak to my family and for about seven months, I just spiraled down until a little bit like the younger son, I think the text says he came to himself and I called my dad. I've shared some of this before, but in going back home and in starting to seek something different, I decided I wanted to re-enroll in school and I had burned every bridge I knew that existed there. And so I called the one person I thought might be able to help me, who happened to be the president of the college, named John Kuykendall. Now, presidents of colleges are pretty busy, and they're hard to get a hold of, especially when you left the way I did. But I called him and asked him if it would be possible for me to re-enroll in school. Mind you, I was not in the running for a Rhodes Scholarship at that point either. He had no reason to let me back into school. But as I spoke to him on the phone, Dr. Kuykendall said, you can re-enroll whenever you're ready. And I said, well, here are the things I'll do. He said, no strings attached. When you're ready to come back, you let us know. He helped me re-enroll in school. He helped me to, through some AP credits in summer school, I wind up graduating with my class, which was a miracle. He wrote me a recommendation when I graduated to go to Japan, which is an experience, as you know, that changed my life. And he wrote a recommendation for me to go to seminary to study for ministry. Dr. Kuykendall was the last in a long line of Presbyterian pastors who was the president of Davidson. I've stayed in touch with him at times through the years the ministry that I've done. He's retired now, living in Davidson. When I let him know that we were coming, we tried to meet up and it turned out our schedules weren't gonna align. 
So the morning of our first tour, Miriam and Beth and I go walking into the admissions office. If you've done one of these before, especially your first one, you're nervous and there's lots of people there and students and parents and everybody's nervous. There's kind of this energy. It was very early in the morning. We had to be there at uh, 8.40. And we go in and, and this room full of people and everyone's in masks and we go up to the desk and where we're supposed to check in and the woman says, oh no, no, Miriam's already checked in. And I turn and look and on a chair in the corner of the room, I see a hand waving. And this individual stood up and I looked at Beth and I looked at Miriam and I said, that's Dr. Kuykendall. I haven't seen it in 25 years. And I went walking over to him and he wrapped me in his arms in a hug and said into my ear, Thomas Daniel, welcome home. Which were which was giving words to what he did for me 25 years before. And I got to introduce him to my daughter. And he got to talk to me and Beth and Miriam for a few minutes before our tour began. What was really special on top of it was after the tour was done, when Miriam said, he's a you know, pretty important person and he was a teacher and a mentor in your life, and for me to be able to look at her and share the story of, no, he is much more than that. He is much more than a teacher or mentor or advisor, although he was all of those things to me. But he encountered your dad when your dad was wandering in a foreign land. And when I had nothing to offer to come back to the school, he welcomed me home. That compassion changed the trajectory of my life, and it has therefore changed the trajectory of your life as well. I need to tell you the story, leaving out some details, <laughs> of how far your dad wandered, and of the love that allowed me to come home. What are those stories in your life? Because the way we become this love is do we reflect on how we've received this love? How has the goodness and prodigal grace and compassion of God encountered you, whether you're the oldest son or the younger? And if we can tell those stories where we are not the hero and remember those stories ourselves, and reflect on the mercy and compassion and goodness of our God, we will become that love to another. And in a broken and in a hurting and wandering world, that compassion will be the greatest witness we can offer to the goodness of our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, lead us, guide us, teach us as we seek to follow you. We pray this as your beloved people, in whose name we pray, in the name of Jesus, amen.